The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. We've got uh, questions on tap here. Hopefully some good answers, too. That'll be seen momentarily. Um, my name's Chris. I'm going to have Jim on in a moment here. But uh, I'll give you a heads up right at the beginning here. If you'd like to send in your own questions for consideration for the show, best way to do that is send them directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. And uh, put in the subject line, it's a question for the podcast. That's the most efficient way to get him a question. It'll go into our uh, pool of questions, not guaranteed to be answered on the show, but um, certainly possible. And if we don't answer your question, it's likely that we will answer a question substantially similar to yours. But we really appreciate those of you who send in questions because that's the only way a Q&A show works. You can't just give answers only. It's a little awkward that way. So appreciate your questions. Continue sending those in. Uh, Jim is in the remote studio today. My guess is he's getting ready to do some, uh, well, assuming his back is holding up, he's going to do some gardening. We're We're frantically in the garden planting season here in Colorado. Um... Sounds like the we we have a little, um, you know, sad news. Some of Jim's baby lettuce didn't survive the latest hailstorm, so he may not get some of the roughage that he would normally eat. But maybe he was able to save other important parts of his garden. What say <laughs> you, Jim? Did you were you wiped out, or did you uh, save no, some stuff? I- my garden is recovering quite quite nicely. I was surprised, folks, because I complained that it was, I think it was last week, I had that 15, 20 minute pea size hailstorm. It just mm-hmm. kept hailing and hailing and hailing. Uh, and I went out and I looked at my, my more mature lettuce. I put my lettuce in the ground out here, folks, uh, usually around the third week or so of March. And um, that lettuce had grown fairly sizable and, and weathered the pea size hail quite well. But you plant lettuce in stages. So I had just planted some 
relatively new baby lettuce that I started in my, my house and put it out there. And after the hailstorm, it was, it was sad. It was, it was like yeah. a battlefield. It was, they were, they were bits of lettuce strewn everywhere. And, um, I thought, Oh, there's no way they're going to come back. But surprisingly, some did. Hmm. I, I tough little critters they were. Uh, and I think overall, a little bit more than half have started to come back, and I think we'll be okay. So I fertilized them yesterday hmm. and uh, been patiently waiting to see if they'll continue to, to grow. There's There's been hail all around us in Colorado, some pretty big storms yesterday. Did Fort Collins get any? Because I got nothing here. But on the news, Aurora and mm. Yeah, points, I didn't see uh, much. There wasn't much action up here. Okay, yeah, they, they got a hell of a lot of rain, Denver south, but um, a lot of it was hail. Hail is, I think Colorado is the worst state for hail, and uh, we true. get it every spring. It's mm-hmm. it's difficult. So I haven't put my tomatoes out yet because uh, mm-hmm. I fear they will not be as resilient. And um, it's difficult to cover each individual tomato plant, mm-hmm. especially me. I grow between 20 and 25 tomato plants. And uh, there's no way I can get out there and get them all covered. So my tomatoes actually grow in bigger pots, folks. And I wheel them in and out of my garage, depending on what the weather does. And in another couple of weeks, usually by the second week of June, I feel a little more comfortable. Uh, and I'll put them out in the ground then. Anyways, that's that's my little Colorado gardening story. Nice. Oh, I've, I should probably let everybody know, too. A uh, little update on our... Uh, um, foster bulldog sheldon i've mentioned him a couple times we've had him for an extended period as a foster because we were waiting for him to have a heart procedure um, at the csu vet hospital he underwent that procedure uh, on wednesday and came through with flying colors so uh, sheldon the foster bulldog is uh, uh, back to normal, basically, at this point. And I think it's because they, turns out they ended up um, giving up the attempt to fix all the heart issues that he had and essentially did a much more minor procedure just to improve his quality of life and just uh, admitted that it really wasn't possible to truly fix all the other issues that he's got. But he's... Uh, uh, doing better than he was before is those of you who may have had relatives or or pets that had hearts or heart uh, procedures before you know, when a heart's not working well um, your lips and tongue are not as pink and rosy as they should be and that's one of the things I've always been fascinated by I've, we had a one of our daughters had a heart defect that was was uh, fixed when she was 10 years old and the most striking thing was the immediately after the surgery we commented on how pink her 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 lips and uh tongue were compared to before because the oxygen through her body was so much better and lo and behold sheldon had the same thing so he's got a nice bright pink tongue now and uh he's uh uh, his breathing is better and so he's definitely getting a lot more oxygen than he than he did before so those of you wondering about sheldon he's doing quite well we've got to hold him for a little bit longer but then he'll be being adopted out to his forever home and uh, our pack size will be reduced once again. Was that my cue? That's your cue. Yeah. That's the Sheldon update. 
Good to know about Sheldon. Did you name Sheldon? I think I asked this before. Did he, did he come uh, with his name? No. We named him. I don't remember whose. It's kind of a group effort in our house. Uh, people nominate names in the household, and then there's some kind of a vote, and uh, somehow we ended up on Sheldon. Okay. I just asked because I, I like that sitcom, Young Sheldon. I I, mm-hmm. I never was a big, uh, what is it? Uh, big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. I was never a big... I was never a big Big Bang Theory fan, um, but I started watching Young Sheldon for some bizarre reason, hmm. and I actually like, kind of like it. Hmm. And um, I didn't know if you named him after Sheldon from Young Sheldon or Big Bang Theory. No, no, not a. Never really watched either show, so that didn't come. He just looked like a Sheldon. He looked like a Sheldon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Alrighty, folks. Well, we're going to jump into social security questions like we normally do. This first one, Chris, is kind of a uh, uh, different approach. It's not really a question. It was a comment someone shared because you asked them to share how their appeal, based on your suggestion, turned out. Mm -hmm. So it's not from too long ago. It's from April. So you'll probably remember the case. Let me read this email that he wrote. Uh, to bring everybody up to date that he took Chris's advice and, and appealed Social Security. And then if you could just, hopefully this will jog a memory in your head of answering this question. I think what I'm going to want you to do is explain what he means by delayed retirement credits mm-hmm. and where he felt Social Security had made a mistake okay. and you felt they did as well. Okay, it says, hello, Jim and Chris. In January, I asked a question. It had to do with my filing for retirement benefits at age 70 and not receiving my last year of delayed retirement credits. Chris will explain in a minute, folks, what DRCs are, delayed retirement credits. So let me just continue reading. You answered my question on the April 2nd podcast, and Chris said I should appeal my situation and asked me to give you a follow-up. So here is my follow-up. I filed form SSA 561. I'm going to guess, Chris, that's the, hey, I'm appealing your decision form. I don't know. But he filed form SSA 561 in February, asking them to reconsider, specifically asking them to apply all my delayed retirement credits as per their POM manual when the beneficiary is applying at age 70. I called Social Security on May 18th asking for a status since I heard nothing from them and it had been more than 60 days. The person I talked to said they would send a tickle, as she called it, as a reminder and told me to continue waiting. I wonder if a tickle is a social security i mean yeah, should you be telling term. people call social security <laughs> and ask for a tickle <laughs> who knows i mean it's possible i've not heard referred to as that but um no, that would see. be hilarious if they actually have a, <laughs> a a drop down in their communication system send a tickle <laughs> So in other words, folks, he, he expected an answer within 60 days. He didn't get an answer. He called, and the person who answered the phone 
you know, the rep said, I'll send a tickle to get his case hopefully moving forward. He said today, and he sent this to us on May 23rd, today I received a lump sum payment for the difference in what my benefit should have been and what they have been for the last four months. And when I look at my SSA.gov account, it appears they have corrected my payment. Hmm. So it now reflects my full delayed retirement credits that were not applied. Bottom line, it looks like they have corrected my benefits. Nice. I have, I have learned a lot from your podcast and enjoy it. Thank you, especially for the Social Security education. That's a shout out to you, Chris. And the rabbit holes you go down, that's got to be a shout out to me, are the most informative. I like understanding all the details. Thanks again. Um, oh, he gives the same hint for his state. So you'll probably remember this now. Uh, his hint for his state, folks, he lives in the only state that touches four of the five Great Lakes. And I think you guessed this the last time. I think it's the same hint, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think it was Michigan, wasn't it? Yes, he is from Michigan. Yeah. So yeah. I did not know that Michigan touches four of the five Great Lakes. Impressive. Yeah. Okay, so interesting. Do you remember the yeah, case and I, my, bring people up to date on what he's talking about and what he ended yeah. up doing? Yeah. Um, so let me uh, let's see. Let me try to give you the whole story in as concise a manner as possible <laughs> because there's a lot of moving parts here. So first of all, delayed retirement credits are those increases in benefits that you can experience by delaying your claiming for Social Security retirement benefits past your full retirement age, which uh, depending on the year that you were born um, will be between six, age 66 and 67. And if you delay past that, there's a provision in Social Security where your benefits will increase, your monthly benefit amount will increase 8% per year for each year that you delay. And they actually give you credit for these things on a monthly basis. So uh, two-thirds of a percentage point each month is the credit that you'll get to your benefit if you delay claiming. There's a little nuance to how they actually apply these credits in that if you claim your benefit in the middle of the year, they only give you or grant you at that time the delayed retirement credits that you've earned up through the end of the prior year. So for instance, we're in May right now, May of 2023. If you were past your full retirement age and went into claim in May of 2023, they would turn on your benefit and grant you delayed retirement credits that you would have earned through December of 2022. They won't give you immediately the credits for January, February, March, April, and May from the current year. When they give those to you is the following January, then they top you up granting you those extra delayed retirement credits. But that means between May of this year and the end of this year, you're missing a few of your delayed retirement credits. That's just how the system works. There's no way to undo that or change that. That's just how they do it. The only exception 
to this is if you claim at age 70. If you claim it at age 70, no matter when you claim, what month of the year you're claiming, they will immediately grant you the delayed retirement credits all the way up into that month. What they did for the person, this gentleman who had uh, emailed us, is he had claimed at 70. And at that point, it was partway through the year, they let him know that they're going to give him the delayed retirement credits through December of the prior year and then top him up the following January, treating him as if he would claimed at an age other than 70 because the program operations manual, the POM, P-O-M, clearly states that these delayed retirement credits need to be applied in their full form when you are claiming at 70. None of this wait for the last few and top you up in January nonsense that works for everybody else. So um, he mentioned they had done this and wrote in and said, is this right? I thought, you know, I thought they were supposed to apply them, uh, you know, fully at the month that I turned 70 when I claim. I shouldn't have to wait for some of them. And he was exactly correct. So I encouraged him to contact Social Security. He filed SSA 561, which is the title of that document is Request for Reconsideration. And uh, clearly, they finally agreed with him, which I'm glad they did because uh, that's how it's supposed to work. And it's spelled out specifically in the program operations manual that if you claim at 70, they are to top you up fully and not make you wait for any of the delayed retirement credits. Now, why they do this for those claiming at 70 and not everybody else? I don't know. I think it's just the way the computer system's programmed, or maybe back in the day they were doing this by hand and they didn't want to um, you know, burden the system with all these people having doing manual calculations on their, on their notepad and on their desk or something. I don't, I don't know. I'm just guessing. I, I don't know why. It's just the way the system works. So just be aware of that. If you're claiming after your full retirement age and you're not yet 70, there will be a little delay on when you get some of your delayed retirement credits, depending on the month during the year that you actually claim. So we've talked about this extensively. I, I think I've uh, that's about as tightly as I can describe this. Um, but we've talked about this in, at great length a few times. That's probably, I believe that's where this person heard it is we had talked about it before. And then when they claimed and it didn't work the way I described, they reached out. Glad I, I'm glad I was right because <laughs> it benefited this person and, and they were able to get it fixed. So um, that's essentially the story of what went on here. So I'm, I'm glad that we heard the follow-up because I always, uh, you know, some of the, sometimes things don't work the way we think they do. And the only way we figure it out is if someone follow, follows up. In this case, they confirmed that what, uh, what we claimed was correct, but um, it could have been wrong. Maybe there was a nuance somewhere I wasn't aware of, and, and they actually did it right initially. I would want to know that. So if you ever run into a case where what we're saying is different than what the reality is that you're experiencing, we'd love to hear about it. We want to know if, we're, if we ever say something that's not correct. So yeah, I think right. that's the scoop, Jim. Especially Chris. He loves to be pointed out if he's wrong. Mm -hmm. So if Chris is ever wrong, point it out to him. Well, that's how you learn and fix it and, and uh, then start giving out the right information. So 
Right. And if I'm ever wrong, point it out to me as well. But remember, you spell Jim, C-H-R-I-S, just so people know. Nice. Okay. Uh, Let's see. We're going to do another question. I think I'm going to do a shorter question. Maybe I'll do two shorter questions because these are pretty short. Um, Oh, hint. Okay. Let me see. Oh, this is a, I did not know this. Again, folks, we do not vet these hints. Um, I wouldn't have guessed this state. I think I would have guessed a different one. But his state clue, uh, actually her state clue, she is a Georgette. She lives in a state that has more U.S. national parks than any other state in the nation. Hmm. Uh, well, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. So let me think what might make sense. It's probably a large state. So it's not Rhode Island, you're saying? So, correct. I would, Poor would Rhode Island. Shocking. Rhode Island it gets the blunt of everything because it's yeah. so tiny. So we're talking Alaska, Texas, California. Um, Nevada is pretty darn big. Um. Wow. National parks. Right, don't overthink this, Chris. This Alaska. Is your time in I'm going to go with Alaska just because it's so enormous. There's just a lot of room. There could be a lot of them. That's what popped into my head too, Alaska. But then when I read the answer, I thought, oh, this makes sense. There's a hell of a lot more people. They're going to put parks where people are. That's what I'm thinking. Mm. California. Yeah. I'm not shocked that, I mean, that was on my short list, but uh, uh, good for them. Yeah, that's awesome. And when there's a lot of people, I think it's good to have these places you can go and get away from some of those people. Although a lot of those parks in California are packed with people, unfortunately. Right. But uh, yeah, okay. cool. Fun fact. Be- fun fact. Begins, hi, Jim and Chris. I find your show very helpful. And I'm one of the many who listen while walking my dog. Hmm. I have a social security question. My husband is 63. His full retirement age is 66 and 10 months. Mm -hmm. I am 54. His Social Security benefits are less than the spousal benefit he would get under my Social Security. Mm -hmm. Can he take his own benefit early, as in now? Remember, Chris, he's 63. Mm -hmm. Can he take his own benefit early, as in now? And then later, switch to the higher spousal benefit when he reaches 66 and 10 months. I will likely not be taking my benefit until 70. Would the spousal benefit at 66 and 10 months be reduced because he took his benefit early? Or would he still qualify for the full spousal benefit? She's a little confused on when he's eligible for spousal benefits. Yeah, there's a couple things going on here for sure. Um, yes. So let me tackle it first. Let's tackle what the question. Read it again? No, let me tackle the question that they posed and then I'll clarify something they're assuming that is, is not quite right. So when you claim, when you have eligibility for both your own benefit and potentially a spousal benefit, which her husband does, her husband has his own and has you know eligibility uh, under her record as a spousal benefit, 
And there is a spousal benefit potential there because what she stated, uh, half of hers is larger than all of his. Uh, If his was bigger than half of hers, then there would be no spousal benefit opportunity there because they will pay you the larger of the two benefits. But in a case like his where he has eligibility for his own and the spousal, they'll actually pay it to you as two pieces. They'll pay you your own benefit, and then when you become eligible for the spousal benefit, that'll be paid as what's called a spousal offset piled on top of your own benefit to get you potentially to the 50% of her benefit. Um, The challenge in a case like this is if you claim your own benefit first before you um, have the opportunity to claim a spousal, that benefit of yours will be reduced. And then ultimately when you add the spousal offset, that will pile on top of the reduced retirement benefit you previously claimed so you won't get to the 50% amount it'll be short and this is a classic this is very confusing to a lot of people we get this question constantly that they don't understand that piling on top of situation and they think that you could claim your own for a while and then later switch to a spousal and have no ill effects from the fact that you claimed your own because in their minds they're switching from their own benefit to a spousal. That's not the case. They're always collecting their own. They're, you're assumed or deemed to be collecting your own first, and then the spousal offset is piled on top. Your own might be zero. If you didn't have a Social Security benefit of your own, then the spousal offset is the total that you're getting. But if you have your own, the spousal offset is just going to be this this topping up piece that goes on uh, above and beyond your own to get you to the potential spousal benefit. So if he claims his own early, his potential spousal benefit will be permanently reduced as well because of this effect. But things are even more complicated than what she's describing because I believe she's forgetting that he will not be eligible for a spousal benefit until she opens the door, unlocks the door to get it, and that happens when she claims her benefit. So what he won't be able to do is claim his own now, and then at 66 in 10 months, just you know, three less than four years from now, claim a spousal. Because first of all, she'll only be 57. She won't be able to claim her own benefit yet, even if she wanted to. The earliest she could claim her own and unlock the doors at 62, but she said she's intending to wait to 70, to get all those delayed retirement credits that she uh, would be awarded if she did that. And at that point, he'll be, by my math, 79. So he could claim his own now, reduced, or he could claim it at 66 and 10 months if he doesn't want it to be reduced, or he could get his own delayed retirement credits by waiting until, you know, past his 66 and 10 month. Then once he gets to the, um, you know, 79 when she opens the door if there's a spousal offset available he could claim it whether it's reduced or not will depend on if he claimed his own prior to his 66 and 10 months which is sounds like something they're considering the other thing i would recommend they look at is maybe he could get to something equal to or better than the spousal 50 percent on her record 
by him waiting to 70. That would be a lot sooner than 79. And maybe through delayed retirement credits, his own benefit could get big enough to be equal to or close to maybe even exceed 50% of hers. So they don't share any of the numbers with me. So um, I can't, you know, give you some hypotheticals on any of this kind of stuff. And I don't know if it makes sense in their situation for him to claim now. It might make perfect sense for him to claim now. Might make perfect sense for her to wait to 70. Might make perfect sense for her to claim at 62. Could, uh, you know, you got to fold these Social Security decisions into the broader retirement plan situation. Make sure you're not making this decision in a vacuum just on Social Security. There's no magic way of figuring out your, you know, we can tell you your optimal claiming strategy once you're passed away. At that point, I can tell you exactly what would have maximized your benefits. Since you can't, we can't know that early enough to make that decision, uh, the best thing to do is look at the whole picture and how this all fits together, and then a you know an appropriate strategy will probably reveal itself. But a uh, few extra things I needed to point out there. As you picked up on, Jim, there's uh, clearly she wasn't anticipating the fact that he can't claim until she does. Um, exactly. Now, in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, now granted, there's a, an age difference between them, mm-hmm. but... If the age, what I'm getting at, my mind is thinking, as you can tell, if they were divorced, it would work a little bit different. I'm not advocating they don't get divorced, mm-hmm. but a divorced person doesn't yeah. have that same issue. Right. They just have to wait until the spouse would have hurt 62, and then they right. could have filed, correct? Yeah, and what Jim's referring to there is if they were divorced – and divorced for at least two years, then he does not have to wait for her to claim to collect a spousal benefit. The door would unlock for him automatically at age 62 when she turned 62 rather than waiting till she claimed at 70. So there is kind of this weird strategy you might imagine that if they were to get divorced, there's actually an opportunity for a slightly better claiming strategy for him for Social Security. Like you said, it's rare that that's enough justification to get divorced. But if it did happen, then the the story does change in that fundamental way. They remove the requirement that she claim to unlock the door. All that has to happen is she has to have the potential to claim, which will happen when she turns 62. And because they know that people might get divorced to take advantage of this rule, they put that two-year limit on there. As long as you're, they'll they'll treat you as if she had claimed. As long as you were dis, uh, divorced at least two years before you claim. So uh, the numbers work kind of. You know, in, in this case, she's not going to turn sixty-two for eight more years. Um, so this, you know, there's plenty of time to ponder this get, strategy <laughs> but plenty of time to yeah, get divorced yeah. how, how many conversations over the kitchen table were there <laughs> honey i do love you but honest yeah. it's for social security <laughs> only uh-huh i'd be really careful with that conversation whoever decides to bring that up uh, so yeah but you're you're right there is that one little nuance once they're divorced that uh, wouldn't force him to wait until she claims Potentially okay. giving you know him an eight year head start on that uh, on that spousal benefit. 
That's what I thought. That that idea was in the back of my head. Um, and as we'll see when we get into the regular questions, uh, clarification from last week, that little thought that was in the back of my head was right. But I'll share a little bit more uh, when you finish this last Social Security question. Okay. Um, did they give a hint? No hint. These are a hintless person. Um, but this is going all the way back to February. Maybe we weren't asking for hints back there in February. But this last question was from March. So somewhere between February and March was when this whole little thing started, I'm guessing. Uh, it says, hello, Jim and Chris. I listen to the show during my walks. There we go. Another exerciser. Oh, wait. Well, I guess this is a hint. I apologize. Hmm. There's no answer. We're going to have to Google this because I have no idea. Uh, she says, it's a Georgette. She says, I am from the land of enhancement. Oh, enchantment. Enchantment. The land of enchantment. We don't have to look that up. I know that one. How do you know that one? Because I grew up in the West. Oh, what's the land of enchantment? New Mexico. Is it? Mm-hmm. Why? Have you been there? No. Is it enchanting? Very much so. Okay. <laughs> All right. If, if Listener, if you are not from New Mexico, please let me know. In no, fact, put in the subject line, Chris is wrong. No, put I, that in all caps. No, it's on the sign when you go into the state. It's right there. It's on, it's on their uh, license plates. Just watch for a New Mexico license plate. Okay. Well, land of enchantment. Mm-hmm. That was her hint. If you're going to give a hint, it's always good to give me the state as well. Oh, she knew okay. I'd get it. She knew you would get it. Okay. <laughs> All right, here's her question. My husband has a small pension that will affect his Social Security benefit because of WEP. He has the option to allow me to get the pension after his death. Mm -hmm. Will my Social Security be affected by WEP too in that case? I am going to wait until I'm 70 to collect Social Security, and I don't want it to be decreased. Fascinating situation here. It will not affect her survivor benefit. When she says he, she could get his pension after he passed, if he chooses that option, sounds like there's some choices on his pension claiming. That survivorship benefit that he that she would collect, and maybe it's she kind of implies it would be 100% of his, you know, what he was collecting while they were both alive. While it is going to affect his Social Security because he participated in a non-covered pension, that's what generates the WEP, the windfall elimination provision, which can reduce your benefit here in 2023 by about $500 a month is the maximum that it could reduce it. Oftentimes it's less than that. But um, that effect does not apply to her because she did not participate. And you might say, well, wait a minute, she's getting the non-participating pension as a survivor. It's not how they apply the rule. She did not participate in a non-covered pension. She's just the survivor beneficiary. So she could actually receive unreduced Social Security and all the pension that is left behind uh, if they choose the survivor benefit. So um, just, to, again, why they do it that way, and it's just the way it works. It's just uh, how the rules are, and uh, it's, you know, Good news. I, some of these rules are bad news for people. It's, you know, oh, bummer, it doesn't work that way. But in this case, it's good that it works that way because a survivor um, has a you know, better position than if they would get a WEP offset or, or GPO consequences, that sort of thing. None of that applies to her because she was not the participant in the non-covered pension. 
Alrighty, excellent. That's it for Social Security questions, folks. If you want your Social Security question answered, Chris will give you information on how to get us that. Actually, you began the show with that, and he'll, mm-hmm. he'll summarize it as well on how to get your Social Security question in to hopefully be answered. Okay, let's get into the regular questions now. Um, this first one is going to be a clarification of last week's question. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the, the question last week, Chris? It was a, a woman who inherited her an IRA as successor beneficiary from her mom, mm-hmm. who was the primary beneficiary who inc- inherited it in 2013 from, from her, her brother. brother. Yeah, mm, I do remember that one. Okay, so real, bri- real, real briefly, folks, go back and listen to last week's show if you have to. There was a woman who in 2013, before Secure Act passed, in 2013, inherited an IRA. I forget how old the mom was uh, when she inherited it in 2013, but inherited it in 2013 from her brother and was allowed to stretch. Remember, prior to January 1st of 2020, you could stretch the distributions from an IRA. And that took effect in early 2000s. I think 2002 is when that passed under the uh, second Bush administration. So the, 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 the stretch only was around for, a, I think, about 20-odd years, uh, and then it kind of went away. It never was um, how IRAs were first created in the 70s. It was added in the early 20, 2000s, I think 2002. Okay, so in 2013, she inherits an IRA. She begins stretching it out over her life expectancy. Mm-hmm. You are allowed, if you can stretch, to name a beneficiary of what is essentially a beneficiary IRA. Mm -hmm. During the stretch, it's not your IRA. You are just beneficiary of a dead guy's IRA. Mm -hmm. So they allow you to name, not a primary or contingent beneficiary, they allow you to name what is called a successor beneficiary because you're just going to follow the Mm -hmm. original beneficiary if they die before they fully close the IRA out over their remaining life expectancy. And that's what happened to this woman. Mm -hmm. This woman inherited an IRA from her mom, who inherited it from her brother in 2013. She inherited it from her mom in 2021, when her mom was 77. And she was wondering how does she base her RMDs because it is an IRA that's being stretched. Mm -hmm. She correctly knew prior to secure prior to January 1st of 2020, she would have stepped into the shoes of her mom is how we used to word it. Mm -hmm. You're going to step into the shoes of the original beneficiary and continue that beneficiary IRA under the remaining life expectancy of the original primary beneficiary. And you could have as many successive beneficiaries as you need Mm -hmm. until the life expectancy of the original beneficiary is finally exhausted. That was the idea of stretch. It Mm -hmm. could allow that IRA to go a very long time, hence the name stretch. Under secure, when a successive beneficiary steps in to a pre-secure stretched IRA or a post-secure IRA that was being stretched 
by a beneficiary who qualified to stretch. And there's a few, there's a very limited number, a spouse, a minor child, not an adult child and not a grandchild, just a minor child, a disabled individual, a terminally ill individual, and someone who's not more than 10 years younger than the person who died. Essentially, someone who inherits an IRA and they're pretty much the same generation or within 10 years of the date of birth, if you will, of the person who died. Those people can stretch. Okay, under new secure, if you inherit an IRA that is already being stretched, you're the successor beneficiary. You no longer step into those shoes, technically. The 10-year rule will apply. Right. But the question she had, and she acknowledged all that, her question was, because it gets confusing under a concept called ALAR, mm-hmm. at least as rapidly. Now, she's, if you remember, Chris, I said she sent me a link to read, mm-hmm. and I clicked on it, and I saw it was 2010. It was right. And I never read it. I just closed it. So she wrote back and pointed out to me, very nicely, thank you, didn't call me an idiot, it was actually from 23. It's an Ed Slot article, it turned out to be. Hmm. And he put the date 23-02-10, February 10th of 2023. Who dates that way? Put the damn date at the end. I saw the 10, oh, and I thought, oh, this is from 2010. <laughs> so first thing I'm going to do when I right. see Ed is cuss him out for putting the stupid date the 23. The at the end, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Were you in Europe? Seriously, Ed? <laughs> this is America. We put the date at the end. So the answer was in Ed's article, and that's why mm-hmm. she was scratching her head. Mm-hmm. And she wrote back to me. And she said, are you sure, Jim? And she said, you got the date wrong. And then when I reread it, mm-hmm. now the article she gave is far more involved than her situation. Mm-hmm. It was a successor who inherited from a successor who inherited from a successor. It was just a nightmare to try to follow. <laughs> right. But remember when I was answering the question, I said, under the concept of ALAR, the government, the IRS rather, wants you to begin taking distributions from an inherited IRA under the 10-year rule if you inherit it from someone who is already taking their required minimum right. distributions. Right. So you can't... and. You know, concisely. Delay for the first nine right, years. The, the ten-year rule. You can't sit on it for ten years and then take it all out. You have to take RMDs during the ten-year period, unless the person who died originally, the owner who died, right. and they weren't subject right. to RMDs. Right. Then you didn't have to take anything right. for the first nine years. But in this case, and they were because she was, you know, obviously right. the mother who's now passed away was taking RMDs under the stretch. Absolutely. So she knew she was going to be subject to RMDs because Mm -hmm. the ALAR principle. But what's confusing, and I kept this in the back of my mind, and that's why I said I'm not 100% sure. Let me check. Mm -hmm. Under ALAR, if you inherit an IRA, not a successor beneficiary, folks, you're just the primary beneficiary, you inherit an IRA, you are not allowed to stretch, 10-year rule applies, If the person has already taken RMDs, 
they are likely older than you. It's not all the time, but they are likely older than you. And their RMDs are substantially greater than yours. Mm-hmm. But the IRS said, hey, you can base the year one through nine required minimum distributions on your life expectancy, even if it results in lower RMDs for year one through nine. And that makes you scratch your head because at least as rapidly makes you say, well, I'm not going to close this IRA as As rapidly. But the IRS allows that. Mm -hmm. But as I was answering this question, I said, in the back of my mind, I remember that you might step into the shoes, but I'm not 100% sure as a successor beneficiary. Mm-hmm. And you can't use your lower life expectancy. So I confirmed that. And that is 100% true. Mm-hmm. So there if is you, still a stepping into situation. You still step in the you're shoes, stepping yes. into, but you're limited to the 10-year period. But... If someone has a life expectancy of less than 10 years and she put, her mom has a life expectancy when she died of 9.8 years. So it's essentially 10. Mm-hmm. But what if you inherit an IRA from someone who had inherited an IRA mm-hmm. under the stretch and there's only seven years left? Mm-hmm. You step into their shoes And those are massive RMDs. Mm -hmm. There'll be a divisor of seven, the following year a divisor of six, the following year a divisor of five, four, three, two, one. And it's closed in seven years, not 10. And that's too bad. There is no 10-year rule for a successor beneficiary, a true 10-year rule. You will step into the shoes of of the original beneficiary. This does not apply, folks. Do not get confused. If you inherit an IRA from the original IRA owner, this is only a successor beneficiary. You inherit an IRA from someone who already inherited an IRA. So in her case, her mom inherited it in 2013 and was stretching. What if her mom lived a couple more years, Chris, Mm -hmm. and instead of a 9.8, it was a 6.8. Let's say her mom died three years later. She would not be able to keep the 10-year rule Mm -hmm. would apply to her, but she can't keep it open for 10 years. So 10 years is the longest potential. The longest. Yeah, but it could be shorter, like in a case like you're describing, yeah. It gets confusing. Now, what if the mom who was a beneficiary, she already inherited an IRA from someone. She was the primary beneficiary. She has a beneficiary IRA and she dies with 14 years remaining her life expectancy and the daughter inherited it. She still would step into the shoes of her mom. The divisor would be 14, the following year 13, 12, 11, 10, so on and so forth, for only 10 years. Actually, technically nine Nine years. Because in year 10, the remaining IRA has to close, even though there's still time left in the stretch. That doesn't matter. So a successor beneficiary 
no longer steps into the shoes and continues the stretch. They step into the shoes and will be subject to a 10-year payout or the remaining life expectancy of the primary beneficiary, whatever's less. And that's what I just wanted to clarify. In the back of my mind, I was thinking that, but I wasn't 100% sure, so I said I wanted to check. Yeah, I'm glad we walked through this because that now is ingrained in my brain. Um, We'd walked through this, I think, once before, but it wasn't stuck in there. And now with this, this is a great example of this being applied. And uh, it's confusing for me, it's it's, it's now clicked. So I'll, I'll remember this going forward. But yeah, it's this is a good example of the convoluted rules that end up coming out of Congress creating what at face value seems reasonable. But when they start to apply it, things get all kind of messy with all these exceptions and this category and that category and how old this person is at that time and all this kind of stuff. And boy, I sure wish they'd make IRAs easier, easier, more straightforward and simple. These rules could have been written in a way that just made it just more consistent. You know, this is just the way it is, you know, this, you know, um, but yeah, this, the application of these adjustments from the secure act, messy. They should just either say, I know, Irrespective, if you're a primary beneficiary or successor beneficiary, you either use the dead person's life expectancy or yours, just be done with it in both cases. Mm -hmm. But they don't. And they say ALA, at least as rapidly as how we're basing this. But again, in a primary beneficiary standpoint, you get to use your life expectancy. But in a successor beneficiary, you have to use the remaining life expectancy of the decedent. That's the best way of remembering it. And- The old step into the shoes continues on an IRA being stretched. It's just how it is. Now, to add another wrinkle to this, because this is real easy wrinkle, folks. What if you inherit an IRA that's been subject to the 10-year rule, but no stretches involved? In other words, the person dies post January 1st of 2020. So you have someone who dies After 2020, the person, the primary beneficiary inherits it. They are not allowed to stretch. They have to do the 10-year rule. And they're year three into the 10-year rule and die. But they named a successor beneficiary. That successor beneficiary does not get a new 10 years. Correct. They step into the shoes of the decedent, mm-hmm. and they can keep it open for seven years. Once a 10-year rule is established to an IRA, that IRA will close in 10 years. Right. So there's no new 10-year rule. But in a stretch IRA, even though you are inheriting it from someone who already inherited it from someone else, When you inherit a stretched IRA, the 10-year rule applies unless the person who died has a life expectancy of less than 10 years. Then you're stuck with their life expectancy. It's not the easiest thing to understand, but if you walk it through, it makes sense. And like I said before, and I'll continue to say, until AI totally takes over and understands all these rules and can answer them correctly each and every time, you have to rely on humans. These are very 
convoluted and confusing rules. It's very easy to make a basic mistake. Don't try to study the rules, listeners. Just know if you inherit an IRA, then start either researching or seeking counsel and trying to put your RMDs in place. I would not rely on just knee-jerk thoughts. It's they're very confusing. Don't study them now. Study them when you inherit the IRA. Just know the when IRA. you get it. Because <laughs> the rules may very well change by the time you get there. So, yeah, it's... Uh... I wish the 10-year rule was like the five-year. It's just 10 years, period. Treat it however you want. As long as it's closed within 10 years, we don't care. All this other complexity is ridiculous, in my personal opinion. They're, they're accomplishing what they want. Get that darn thing closed in 10 years. Micromanaging what happens during that 10-year period. You know, it's bad enough that they're forced to close it in 10 years instead of stretching. Just let them do whatever is right for them during that 10-year period. This other stuff, I think it's crap, honestly. But just my personal opinion. Okay. Let's get into the new question of the week. That technically was the new question of the week. But it's more well, of we're a deep into the show for the new question of the week. <laughs> okay. Um, this one came in. It's pretty good. They are from, he give me the state. Does he give a hint? Oh, Ooh. Mm. Oh, you ain't going to get this one. Mm. Greetings, Jim and Oh, dear Jim and Chris. Mm-hmm. Greetings from a state proud of its mascot, the Jolly Green Giant and Paul Bunyan. mascots i guess i should say why do you think i wouldn't get that because i didn't you knew this one isn't it minnesota all right how the heck did you googled it no paul bunyan you don't i mean seriously all the stories about paul bunyan minnesota i didn't know he was from minnesota yeah figured he'd be from the west well back in the day that was west (laughs) true good point (laughs) right do you know what his bull was called uh, blue. Blue, mm-hmm. yeah. We uh, Years and years and years ago, folks, before I became a cop, I was an arborist. And I had a business and I sold. I've always been an entrepreneur. I sold it when a good friend of mine, also named Jim, got out of the Marine Corps after the first Gulf War. I sold the business to the brother of a cop who was a friend of mine. That's how I became a cop. I was Freddie's friend and Freddie was a cop, so I thought I'll become a cop. But his brother was a firefighter named George, truly named George. And um, I sold him the tree business, Chris. And my buddy who got out of the Marine Corps, I did a road trip with him across the country because he fell in love with a woman while in the Marine Corps in San Diego. And he wanted to see her. And I thought, well, you know, in your early 20s, yeah, sell your business, quit your job and drive cross country made perfect sense, right? So that's what I did. And I end up in San Diego and I stayed in San Diego for quite some time. And um, eventually uh, money ran out, which wasn't hard to do. And a torn, excuse me, a hurricane had hit Massachusetts and um, all these trees fell. And my mom was saying, Jim, if you came back home, and bought a chainsaw and a truck, you could make a kill and you've got no money. No. So my buddy and I thought that was a wise thing to do. His name wasn't Blue. It was Babe the Blue Ox. Babe the Blue Ox. That's, yeah, sorry, I misspoke. It 
suddenly okay. my brain clicked in. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Sorry. So it, he was colored blue, yeah. but it was right. babe. babe yeah. So anyways, long story short, folks, we drove back from California. And that's when I first entered Colorado. I saw Colorado driving uh, west because we went to San Diego from through Texas and, and Arizona. But we came back uh, on I-70 and we drove through Colorado. I fell in love with the Rocky Mountains. We broke down in Silver Plume, Colorado, uh, with my truck and had it repaired in two days in Silver Plume. Spent two days in the Rockies, west of Denver, fell in love with it and told Jim, I said, Jim, I'm going to live here someday. That's how I ended up coming back eventually to Colorado. But when we got back to Massachusetts, I bought two chainsaws, some climbing gear, and a blue dump truck that we named Babe. Mm. I was wondering how this was going to finally get back to Paul Bunyan. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a little idea of what I did prior to becoming a police officer. Okay. I have listened to your show for many years and enjoy the deep dives you take on how you became an arborist. No, uh, the deep drives you take on planning topics. And I continue to learn more each week. I have a question on qualified charitable distributions. I want to take QCDs to fund my charitable intentions and to reduce my RMDs beginning at age 75. So when he turns 75, folks, his RMDs will be in place. So he's not subject to RMDs yet. A QCD, because I have to add a little bit of clarity here because you're not going to understand this question, is where the government allows you to send money directly from your IRA to a charity. That money will never be declared as income. So it can keep your uh, gross income and your adjusted gross income low. If you had to take the RMD and declare it as income and then donate the money to charity for a deduction, having to declare it as income can push you into higher limits, subject you maybe to IRMA, could subject your Social Security to taxation, could do all sorts of bad things, even though you're going to be able to get a partial deduction. And even now, you don't get much of a deduction at all. Because of the Tax Cuts and Job Act, most people don't deduct charitable deductions anymore unless they bunch them. So QCDs are a valuable planning tool. If you have a $30,000 RMD to take and if you took it, it's going to cause all sorts of tax headaches. You could transfer some or all of that RMD to a charity directly, never have to declare it as income in that particular year, and maybe benefit not only by giving to charity, but reducing your taxes. So QCDs are valuable. I just wanted to clear the air on what they are. However, my retirement funds are housed in my 403B and 457, and I want to leave them there. I don't want to move them to an IRA. I think they have attractive investment options and an attractive fee structure. I do not have an IRA, and I do realize I could transfer funds into one from the 403B and 457. Since my RMDs, when I have to take them, cannot be aggregated across a 403B or a 457 or even an IRA, 
Taking extra money from an IRA would not satisfy my RMD requirements from the 457 or 403B. Can you think of any scenario short of me having to roll my entire 403B and 457 into an IRA that will result in the same tax consequences as if I made a QCD directly from my 403B or 457? The reason he's asking this, folks, QCDs can only come from an IRA. And he's recognizing a few things. He doesn't give me his age. I don't know if he turns 75 next year or if he turns 75 in 10 years. He's starting to do some planning, though, and he's realizing, hey, I want to do this QCD thing. It sounds pretty damn cool. And it's going to help me from a tax perspective. Number one, I can't do them from a 457 and a 403B. I don't really want to move the money to an IRA. You might be sitting there saying, well, why don't you move just enough to the IRA to be able to generate some distribution from the IRA for the QCD? His problem is, as he rightly points out, he cannot take money from his IRA and RMD from his IRA, send it as a QCD and use it to offset an RMD from a 457 or a 403B. They cannot be aggregated. He still has to take a 403B RMD, a 457 RMD, and an IRA RMD. He is correct. His only option would be to transfer the entire accounts over. That way, the entire RMD can be offset. To put this as an example, let's just say, folks, he has a his 457 and his 403B has a RMD of thirty thousand. I'm just making this easy. Each. Or no total. total. The total would be thirty thousand across the two of them. Let's say each was fifteen thousand. He cannot take. 30 from the 457 and say I'm offsetting the 403B. He has to take 15 and 15. Let's say he moved a third, a third, a third of his money to an IRA, a 457, and a 403B. He still has a $30,000 total RMD. I'm making this real simple. Follow the math. He still has a $30,000 total RMD, this time 10000 from each account. He can't do a $30,000 QCD from the IRA and say, hey, I'm sending my entire RMD of $30,000 as a QCD to a charity so I don't have to declare any of that RMD. No, 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 no. The $30,000 that went from the IRA would offset the $10,000 RMD of that IRA But in my example, he'd still be subject to a $10,000 457 RMD and a $10,000 403B RMD. So he's being hit by two issues here, aggregation rules and QCD rules. QCDs can only come from IRAs. And aggregation rules say dissimilar accounts cannot offset RMDs from all of them. They should get rid of that rule, but they don't. 
So an IRA can offset multiple IRAs. You don't have to take, if he had three IRAs, each with a $10,000 RMD, he could do one $30,000 QCD from one IRA and offset because IRAs are aggregable. I'm not sure if that's a word, but you can group IRAs. You can also group multiple 403Bs. If he had three 403Bs, he could take one RMD from one 403B of 30,000, which would offset the RMDs from all his other 403Bs. In my example, 10,000 each. But he cannot do a QCD from a 403B. So he's, he's like a ping pong ball bopping into all these rules that are keeping him from doing what he wants to do. He likes the low fees and he likes the investment options in his employer plan and he doesn't want to move them, but he can't aggregate them and he can't do QCDs. And he's asking, is there any way to artificially do this? No, there really isn't. Not to the point where the RMD is not going to be declared as income. Yes, you could take an RMD and then donate it and take a deduction maybe. I get that. But it's not the same as just saying, hey, I don't want to declare this RMD as income. I don't want my gross income to go up. I don't want my adjusted gross income to go up. I want it to be just a non-issue, just as if it never even happened. The only way to do that QCD is with an IRA, and he's going to have to move those accounts. He asks almost rhetorically, how likely do you think it is that QCDs will eventually be available from 457 and 403B accounts? What he's asking is, do you think they'll ever be allowed in employer plans? Okay, maybe, but I think the industry would fight it tooth and nail. Mm -hmm. And I don't think all of them will allow just because you can do it. They may not allow it because employer plans folks are not set up to do the types of custodial services that IRAs do. IRAs, the I in IRA is individual. If you want to be an IRA custodian, you're dealing with an individual and you're going to bend over backwards to keep that individual and their assets with you so you can keep charging on it. So you're going to allow them to do all these unique little things. Employer plans are behoven or at least established, yes, for the employees, but they're designed to be simple for the employer, to keep costs low, to custody assets for the benefit of the plan. And allowing individuals to call up and say, send $100 to my church and send $50 to the ASCPA. And and I watched on TV and I love this charity and I want you to send $75 to that charity. They're going to tell you to go to hell. They're not designed for that. Go to heck, whatever. (laughs) Whoa, that escalated (laughs) quickly. (laughs) They're just not designed for that. Folks. And I don't think the employers are going to openly embrace yeah. it and say, oh, yeah, call us up anytime. We'll send all these QCD checks out whenever you want. So the government may eventually allow it, but I don't know if the plans are going to adopt it. Yeah, I think uh, the good news is he's got 
at least 10 years for this all to evolve because if his RMD age is 75, he can't be 75 until 2033. So a lot can change in that 10-year period. And while I agree with Jim that it's unlikely that employer plans, even if the rules started to allow it, will embrace this idea, there's always the possibility they'll open up aggregation to be, you know, between plans. And then essentially they'll say, you know, you just need to figure out what your RMD is from all your different RMD style accounts. And at that point, we don't care where you take it from. You can just, you know, we're going to simplify it and, and let you aggregate like we do between IRAs right now. I think there's probably a bigger chance of that happening than employers embracing QCDs for the reasons that Jim mentioned. And you got 10 years to hope for those changes. And honestly, listener, in all my years of doing this, especially a 457 and a 403B, which tells me you probably work for some sort of public sector, I have never seen one that had such amazing investments you couldn't get the same or similar investment True. in an IRA. Mm -hmm. And if you're managing it on your own, I don't see the cost being any higher. Mm -hmm. If you move it to an IRA and have someone manage it for you, yes, there may be an added cost. Mm -hmm. A lot can be said, listener, for simplification as you age. You're going to be 75. Are you going to want to deal with a 457, a 403B, maybe a Roth IRA somewhere or your spouse's accounts, and you're going to have multiple accounts. You want to simplify your retirement, not keep it complex. I really, as Chris said, you got 10 years maybe? I'm scratching my head on what investment you have in those two style plans, which are not known for their quote-unquote low costs and wide investment choices. They're, they're kind of uh, an offshoot in, in the employer-sponsored retirement world, especially 403Bs. They're the mm -hmm. Wild West. If anything, Google it. You'll see most of them have outrageously high fees. It's crazy. Now, so, some, some of are them low. Have, yeah, some I was going to say, some have yeah. cleaned up their act. Yeah. But for the longest time, 403Bs were the Wild West, and to a degree still are, with some school districts offering four, five, six different ones, and you being peppered by four, five, six different custodians, all offering you this, that, and the other thing, and all having brokers and agents go out and talk to you. And they had tend to have, in the past, very expensive investments. Now, it sounds to me like you're intelligent, you've done your work, you like it, but my gut tells me, truly, those investments are probably available outside, maybe even at a lower cost, or an investment so similar, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. And maybe consolidating them into an IRA would make sense for simplification purposes or simplicity purposes and QCD purposes, and aggregation purposes. Mm -hmm. All these things that you're not going to have access to by having multiple plans. Just wanted to throw that carrot mm -hmm. out there. Yeah, it's a good point. Okay. Bup, bup, bup. Very short question. I was going to say, if you have a left? short one, we can squeeze it in, but it's got to be short. Okay. Um, I think we can do both of these short whoa, ones. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That pushing it? <laughs> Might be, yeah. 
Because I know what you—I know what your version of short is. This this (laughs) one, I'll get rid of this one because this one I concede could be longer. Okay, this one, this one can be done short. Okay. Hi, Jim and Chris. Oh, very easy hint. You're going to nail this one. If you get this one wrong, I'm personally going to drive to Fort Collins and smack her upside the head wow. today. But you're very aggressive today. 401ks, you're telling you to go to hell. Money. I'm going to come and slap you upside the head. <laughs> Maybe I'm just angry about my back, which is not getting any better. And I don't think it's sciatica. For everyone who sent me sciatica hints, thank you very much. I went to the doctor. He does not feel it is. I still think it is. I'm starting to put lumbar support in. I'm carrying around this little round pillow, but I'm trying to look for... My doctor said, look for the good back store. I Googled it. We don't have a good back store. If anybody knows where I can go get really good back stuff, please let me know. I thought there was one Amazon. For, I thought there was one here in Fort Collins. I Googled it. I couldn't find one in oh, Fort Collins. Maybe not. Okay. But lumbar supports. I'm starting to put some lumbar in, and I'm feeling better. So... Maybe it may be my lumbar is weak, whatever the heck that means. But I don't know. Anyways, back to this. Um, you're going to get this one. They are from the Tar Heel State. The Tar Heels? North Carolina. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a quick question on Irma. A few years ago, my mom sold several properties. And that income subject to her, subjected her to Irma for three years. I'm guessing she sold the property over a number of years, hence three years subject to Irma. In my research, I found that the sale of a property is not a life-altering event which would qualify for an Irma exception. True. So we never filed for it. Mm-hmm. However, after listening to your show, I have a question. My mom was a landlord and actively participated in her real estate as a business. The sale of the properties are pot of her entering retirement. Retirement is an available exception. So I'm wondering if we could have filed for the exception due to her retirement because she sold the rental properties to retire. And if that's a possibility, could anything be done retroactively? I'm going to answer this one. And the answer is no, you're not going to be able to do it unless your mom truly, truly, was running that real estate as a business. And I can say this because I just read an article in Trust in Estates magazine Mm -hmm. on this. And I didn't save it. And I wish I did because it wasn't about Irma. It was about people who have a couple of rental properties trying to say, this is a business. I run a business. And the article got into how difficult it is to actually claim your rental properties are a business. And in the article, they listed the three steps that one must follow and all the caveats around it. The IRS does not take this lightly and neither, I think, will Social Security Administration because everybody with a rental would play that game. Oh, I sold a rental. I, I was my business and now I'm retiring. And they would play that game. But I think... If your mom could qualify under the very, very strict IRS rules where they draw the line between a real estate investor and a real estate business, Mm -hmm. your mom may own a couple of rentals and she might think of it as a business, but is she in the eyes of the government running a business or is she a real estate investor? Mm -hmm. 
That's the key. Right. To qualify as a business, you have a quantitative test. You have to show for each property you spent 750 hours. Now, there's a way to consolidate properties as well. But to, to show that I did the 750 over all of them, but there's all rules involved in being able to do that. You cannot have done any other work for more time than you spent on your properties. So you couldn't have been, say, a physician for 1,500 hours during the year and took care of a rental property for 750. Won't count. You might have hit the 750, but you had a job that you'd worked at more than you did taking care of the home. So it's not only the quantitative test, you also have the material participation test. And then you have the 5% ownership test and all these other tests, and you have to satisfy all of them. The IRS makes it this strict for a reason. They don't want to game the system with all these mom and pop people owning a rental here and there. If your mom could truly qualify and pass all those tests and was not just a real estate investor, someone who had a couple of properties and said, I want to retire and I don't want to deal with these darn properties anymore. I'm just selling them and I'm going to use the money and generate some income and retire. No, she's not going to qualify. But if she could actually prove she qualifies, you might be able to get away with it. That's my thoughts. What are yours, Chris? Yeah, and just to clarify, the the life-changing events list does not include, quote, retirement. The life-changing event is a reduction of income. So you actually don't have to retire. You just you could go from full-time to part-time and that would be a life-changing event or so don't don't hang your hat on the fact that there's a retirement exception. It's a reduction of income. Now, if she's pulling income from a business, say she's got a legitimate business that's set up and she's receiving income which then stopped because she quote retired. The fact that she also sold some properties that year would all get caught up in the true life-changing event that she would qualify for in the reduction of income. But if she was getting, quote, income as the rent coming in from those properties, that's not the same as being paid a salary or something from a legitimate business. So I, I think it's hard to imagine in the scenario he's describing that it would be easy for, for this to qualify but maybe there is. Maybe it is. Maybe it was a separate entity, a true business that was being run. That um, now, if that was the case, the sale of those business of those properties wouldn't have fallen onto her personal income tax return. That's what makes me think that it really wasn't this separate entity business. Um, but if it truly was, and she was being paid wages in some way from that quote business. And then those wages stopped. There's your life-changing event. And the fact that you also had some real estate transactions that year won't disqualify the fact that you had a life-changing event and would get an SSA 44 um, appeal successful, most likely. So it's possible, but I think it's a stretch. Well, what about, though, because you bring up a very good point. Mm -hmm. We often will have people or, or people will often do a massive conversion in the year of retirement mm -hmm. kind of as a get out of jail free card right because they are going to then announce and say my income is going to drop i've had a reduction of income 
retirement in this case is what's triggering that. But Chris is right. The reduction of income. If this woman didn't qualify as a business because she had another job and she was, again, just an investor, which most mom and pops are, they're not, they may think of it as a business, but you're really just an investor. But she retired from a legitimate job Mm -hmm. in the year that she sold these properties. I think they do have an exemption. Right. It's the same kind of get out of jail free card that that we often use with people doing a Roth conversion in that year. We'll have them, those curious about this, a lot of times people will, will wait to officially retire until like, January, February, March of a particular year. So their income from that job is going to be low, opening up some tax bracket room for a conversion being done that year. And the 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 conversion and then the next year not doing a conversion, that is not life-changing events. But the reduction of income from the work is. And you can then kind of shield a big Roth conversion from creating an Irma issue later on because of that. And the same thing too, just imagine the same scenario, but instead of the Roth conversion happening in the year of the life change, the other life changing event, the sale of the real estate property, you'd, you'd face exactly the same opportunity, I believe. So could he go back and file that now and say, Hey, we made a mistake back then. She had a life-altering event, her income dropped at this point. If she truly did retire from a job that was paying her a salary in the year she sold the property, could she go back and file that retroactively? Yeah, and you could go back if it's it's enough later where essentially what you're asking them to do is look and, and now those tax returns will have been filed and they'll see the reduction of income. So it'll, you know, if nothing else will be easier to prove because it actually happened. But I think she would have to have this other job that she, quote, retired from. Again, retirement is not a life-changing event. It's the reduction of income. But um, it's certainly possible that she could he, he could get that done retroactively if that's the case. Right. If this real now, estate if stuff was her only, quote, job, then probably a stretch, probably not going to work. Right. If if she was already retired from a real job right. and then she sold these properties and you're saying, hey, her income's going to drop because she sold those properties, but that's part of her retirement plan. No, that's not going to work. Right. Okay. okay. Perfect. So that'll bring us uh, to the end of another Q&A show. If you want to send in your own questions for consideration, um, Send them to Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. Give him a heads up on the subject line that it's a question for the podcast. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll be plucked out as question of the week. Get your question answered right away. Um, Otherwise, just keep on listening. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. 
Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 